0: It is so good to be with you. I've actually planned a two-part sermon, which fits perfect for being here, God willing, for the morning and afternoon. And uh, my sermon title is Amazing Attributes, parts one and two, Amazing Attributes. And so if you would turn to Micah, the Old Testament minor prophet, Micah chapter 7, I'm going to read verses 14 through 20. Our focus will be on one key verse here today. Again, Micah chapter 7, verses 14 through 20. Feed thy people with thy rod, the flock of thine heritage, which dwell solitarily in the wood, in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old. According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto unto him marvelous things. The nations shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of thee. Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He will not retain his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. May again the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Well, we are looking at that subject, Amazing Attributes. And what happened with this particular sermon coming together is that I was thinking upon what I would preach and I was actually looking initially at a New Testament passage, but uh, continued to meditate on what the Lord would have me put together. And I just happened to pick up a book by uh, a man who has certainly impacted this denomination and now is a professor up at uh, Puritan Reformed, Dr. Michael Barrett. And I was reading one of his books and as I was reading about Christ in the Old Testament I uh, came across the passage here from Micah 7 that was just referenced and quoted in the book and so I began to read this and to meditate upon it and saw how much there was in such a short section so that's why with basically two and a half verses we're going to have two sermons because there's so much here and of course that's the way the word of God is isn't it just so much there and the overflowing nature of of what God has for us. And as I try to do always, as much as possible, I try to integrate the scripture readings and the hymns that go uh, with the passage. And that's not always completely possible, but we try to do that to have those themes in our minds. And certainly as we focus on some key terms today, I think uh, God will place those hopefully in our hearts and minds. So we're going to begin this morning as we look at the amazing attributes of our God Number one, a profound question, a profound question. And that question is before us in our passage. And our focus here is verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee? Who is a God like unto thee? Well, that is a great question. And the answer is very simple for us. There is none like him. There is no God like our God. And that helps us to be reminded of some facts, as God did so often in the Old Testament scriptures, as he reminded Israel. You know, Israel had a tendency, did they not, to forget and to do the opposite of what they should be doing. Of course, that's not just Israel. That's us as well, as Paul said, the things that we should be doing, we don't find ourselves doing things we shouldn't be doing, those things we find ourselves doing. Oh, wretched man, or woman that I am. So thankfully, it's uh, the forgiveness that we have in Christ and this grace and mercy that we've been singing about here today. But there is no God like our God. And one of the most important passages for the Old Testament saint, and yes, an important passage for us, was Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one goes on to say, and we shall love the Lord our God as Christ shared in the New Testament scriptures with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. So one of the things certainly that Israel was unique for in their time was monotheism. Because they were in the midst of people who were polytheistic. So the one true God versus the many gods. Even as you go back to um, the Old Testament book of Genesis, do you remember uh, when Jacob and Laban had such a wonderful relationship, I'm being sarcastic when I say that, and uh, they were both pretty good at robbing each other blind? Well, it came a point where Laban had accused the household gods of being stolen, and uh, Rachel had them. She had taken those household gods, so even with those who are mentioned here in this passage, we see that the Bible paints them, as Oliver Cromwell said, warts and all. It see, we see who they truly are because it takes us away from the focus of man and our focus upon God. Or in the book of Exodus, when the deliverance took place, each one of those plagues that God sent was an attack upon the God, the false God, the many gods that uh, were being worshipped by Egypt. So that's the uniqueness of Christianity And I wanted us to be reminded of that by our uh, shorter catechism, which uh, I have it in front of me to make sure I quote it word perfect. Question four, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and is being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And then we ask this question, are there more gods than one? Since we're talking about this monotheism versus polytheism, there is but one God only, the living and true God. And the next question tells us that God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we are ones who are monotheistic. We believe in the God of scriptures, the triune God, which we certainly understand more fully in the New Testament scriptures, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So as we look at this and understand, as we ask ourselves the question, who is a God like unto thee? There is no God. There is no other God. We are to not have any other gods before him or besides him. But John Calvin reminds us well that the human heart is an idol factory and that people worship things generally. Look at Romans 1 of the creatures worshiping and serving the creation and not the creator. So it's the tendency. I think then it's true to say people are made to worship because we are to glorify God and enjoy him forever But in doing so, they have the other replacements that they worship instead of the true God. Being given over to a uh, sinful mind, a darkened mind, they go and run after all these things that will never truly give them satisfaction and certainly will not give them salvation. So a profound question, who is like our God? No one. let's talk briefly as we try to describe our God, as we've just read from the Shorter Catechism question number four, what are his attributes? Well, we're certainly not going to try to explain them all, but generally theologians put the attributes of God in two categories. One, incommunicable, that are only to be found in God, the creator, and then communicable, those can be found in us, though imperfectly they can be found in us. What are some examples of incommunicable? Well there's always that uh, the the big os as I called them the omnipotence, the omnipresence, the omniscience, but God is eternal and God is incomprehensible and God is independent. There are things about God that are only to be found in God and they are to found be found in him perfectly. And we as redeemed sinners, as we sang this morning, the chief of sinners who have been able to uh, have God's grace extended to us. We, too, can have the things that are also sound in God, like we have celebrated this morning. Grace, being a gracious person, merciful, being compassionate. Uh, We can go on and on, but you see what we're saying, that there are things in us that we see that are attributes that are God-given, but there is a distinction between the creator and the creature, and we need to make sure that we always remember that is the case. So, a profound question, who is like our God? Who is a God like unto thee? None. And isn't it a blessing to know this morning as we have gathered here in Indianapolis, Indiana, that we are doing what God has commanded? We know, isn't it a humbling thing that you know we know the true and living God? it's just, it's overwhelming. to think of all those places. One of my favorite songs is one of the Isaac Watts songs, which I was gonna choose, Amanda, but uh, it is more of a communion song, but I love it. But all so many who are you know they they've been invited they've been given the gospel call or they're just totally in darkness they never see the glory and light of christ and we are blessed to know the true and living god and that we can gather and worship him so there is no god like our god he is the only god and people who are choosing the others are choosing substitutes which don't even exist and sometimes we've seen that uh, demonstrated in scripture. This just came to mind. Do you remember when the prophets of Baal came together with Elijah and how Elijah mocked their gods? Maybe they're on vacation. Uh, maybe they're, they're in the restroom. Yeah, I mean, he just, he just really let them have it, you know, these false gods. And they're cutting their cells and they're crying out all day long. Nothing happens. And then just a short prayer. And God sends down fire and uh, the Lord, he is the God, the Lord, he is the God. That was the cry of the people when they saw that demonstration of truth and error. So we are certainly blessed. Now, I guess you all have known me long enough that I am a lover of history, especially church history. It was my minor I should have gotten a master's in church history, which doesn't exist anymore where I went to school. But uh, nonetheless, I've been able to continue to study it. And I want to interject a historical figure, uh, mainly because of a hymn that he wrote. I, and it may be or may not be familiar to you. I didn't choose it because I wasn't sure. But uh, we are going to at least become familiar with it through uh, this uh, information. But the man I'd like to speak about was in our colonial period, Samuel Davies. Samuel Davies. Not sure if that's a name that's familiar to you, but let me give you a little bit about him. Samuel Davies was a Presbyterian preacher in colonial America, and uh, it was during that obviously that time of you know British control, and he helped to lead the southern phase of the Great Awakening, the three Great Awakenings that our country has known. And his work during the Great Awakening centered in Hanover, Virginia, where he became the first moderator of the First Presbytery in Virginia. Uh, Samuel Davies was Jonathan Edwards' successor at what is now Princeton University, to be the College of New Jersey. He is considered the founder of Southern Presbyterianism. He was uh, the the fourth president of the College of New Jersey, and he had a couple of names given to him, the preacher of the Great Awakening, and even the apostle, the sent one to Virginia. One uh, professor that uh, I met a number of years ago, Dr. Joe Piper, said that Davies' sermons are a model of gospel preaching. And so I wanted to give you just a a little bit more information about him as an adult here is what he testified this is from his own lips he said I am a son of prayer like my namesake Samuel the prophet and my mother called me Samuel because she said I have asked him of the Lord now here's an interesting story about his boldness in preaching he became so well-known that King George II of England invited him to preach at the Royal Chapel when he and Gilbert Tennant, this was part of the Log College, it was called, of tr- training and ministry. They were in England's raising funds at that time for the College of New Jersey. During that sermon, Davies reportedly stopped and spoke directly to an astonished George II. And here's what he said. When the lion roars, all the animals in the jungle fall silent. And when the Lord speaks, the kings of the earth shut their mouths. Can you imagine such a man today? I wish we had some that would preach like that, Uh, but a man of of great courage, of great uh, uh, benefit to the kingdom of God. And he actually wrote a hymn based upon Micah 7.18, which was our focus today. Now, I want to invite you to something. We're we're not going to have another hymn interjected during the sermon. But if you'd like to follow along, I'm going to quote it so that way it's one that you know. I believe it's found on page 26 of your hymnal. And uh, an appropriate title, Great God of Wonders. And I'll read the refrain at the very end, but uh, I wanted to go through the four stanzas. You'll also notice that the music was given to us by John Newton, so two people joining together here with this great hymn. Davies wrote, Great God of wonders, all thy ways are matchless, godlike, and divine. But the bright glories of thy grace above thine other wonders shine, above thine other wonders shine. Such deep transgressions to forgive, such guilty sinners thus to spare. This is the grand prerogative, and in this honor none shall share, and in this honor none shall share. In wonder lost with trembling joy, we take the pardon of our God, pardon for crimes of deepest dye, a pardon bought with Jesus' blood, a pardon bought with Jesus' blood. Oh, may this glorious, matchless love, this godlike miracle of grace, teach mortal tongues like those above to raise this song of lofty praise, to raise this song of lofty praise. Who is a pardoning God like thee, or who has grace so rich and free, or who has grace so rich and free? It's a wonderful hymn, isn't it? I don't know if it's familiar to you all. Would it be a familiar hymn to you? That's good. Uh, Then maybe another time we can sing it. But I also want to give you this quote that was given to us by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said that Samuel Davies quote, he spoke as on the borders of eternity and as viewing the glories and terrors of the unseen world. So a man that was passionate and Christ-centered in his preaching, uh, one that uh, I commend to you. Well, that was our first point, a profound question. Now, secondly, and finally, a precious demonstration. We have the profound question. Let's look at the, the uh, precious demonstration. Going back to verse 18, who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? Well, let's talk about this just for a moment the words that are here and their meaning. The first thing that we see is that our God pardons iniquity. We've had that focus in our singing, we've had that focus. And the hymn that we've just quoted, and now we have that focus before us in the scriptures, that he pardons iniquity. I was looking through Pastor Jeff's book collection, as uh, pastors tend to do, uh, lovers of books. And uh, I saw one of the books that he had there was by a very able and capable, maybe the most able and capable Baptist theologian of all times, Prior to Charles Spurgeon, his name was Dr. John Gill. And uh, on his shelf is Dr. Gill's body of divinity. Dr. Gill wrote a commentary on the entire Bible. He was uh, wonderful in ancient languages. And uh, he gave a definition that I wanted to give to you for pardoned iniquity. It is this, to lift up sin and take it away. Now to pardon someone is to absolve, absolve them from the consequences or simply forgive. That's the word that we are very familiar with. And then Dr. Gill goes on to say to lift up sin and take it away. Now here's the picture that we should bear in mind when we think of this precious demonstration. Have you ever heard of the term the scapegoat? Even in our culture, the scapegoat. Well, that comes from the scriptures. When two goats were chosen and one would be sacrificed and one would have the high priest confess the sins of the people over him and send him away into the wilderness. That is the idea of pardoning iniquity. When Dr. Gill tells us to lift up sin and take it away, then you have that picture being demonstrated when the high priest confessed the sins of the people of Israel upon that scapegoat and sent him away. Now, one had to be sacrificed. And, of course, you know, we see a picture there as well as we're going to focus on in just a moment in our next point. But the scapegoat, our sins being carried away, as it were, into a land of forgetfulness. That's the idea that we're speaking of here. So God pardons iniquities. He forgives our sins. Secondly, we see that God not only pardons iniquities, but let's look at verse 18 once again. But he passes by the transgression. He pardons iniquity and he passes by the transgression. Now, what is that saying, God passes by? Does it seem like he's just overlooking it? No, he's passing over the transgression. And this is a demonstration of Passover, the Old Testament. Remember when the blood was applied and the death angel came through? When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And that was the symbolic picture of the Christ to come as he would shed his blood upon the cross for our sins and that blood uh, being applied to us because the scripture says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so here the passing over the transgressions is that um, when the blood is applied, that can take place. Now here's something we must bear in mind concerning sin Paul tells us in Romans that the wages of sin is death the wages of sin is death so someone must pay for our sin either we pay for eternally separated from God in hell or someone in our place pays that penalty And that's what the Lord Jesus did for us. He came in our place, our perfect substitute, living the life that we could not live, dying the death that we deserve, but could not die. We could not save anyone through our own blood being shed. So there had to be the blood of God who came and shed his blood. So he took that for us, the blood that we speak of from the Old Testament, uh, Passover, and even now the blood of the New Testament, that we are saved by. It's not through the precious things that Peter speaks of, but with the precious blood of the lamb, without blemish, without spot, who was offered in our place. That blood applies so that God can pass over the transgression. And I want us to consider six key quick verses that teach us about God's forgiveness of sin. These are verses that will be well-known to you, some from our passage today, or will be from our passage later today, and one that we've already read. Six different verses on God's forgiveness of our sins. What does God do? Well, number one, God removes our sins, as we read in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west. God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. Um, I don't think that I'm directionally challenged, but I tell you, it's a lot easier to navigate Indiana than it is Pennsylvania. If you've ever been to the Pittsburgh areas, it's rivers and bridges and hills and roads that just go everywhere. And I can get around after this many years, 30-some years being there, but I just like the flat, intersecting, easy-to-get-to places. Well, uh, where I'm standing, I don't know exactly my directions at the moment, which is not doesn't matter but if you walk north or south you'll be at the north or south pole but start walking east or west and they never meet you just continue continue to walk and that is that idea that we have here as far as the east is from the west they never meet start walking that direction you'll walk yourself to death literally god has removed is isn't that a precious thought that they are they are forgiven number two Isaiah 1.18, God completely cleanses us from the stain of our sins. God completely cleanses us from the stain of our sins. Number three, Isaiah 38.17, God throws our sins, the scripture says, behind his back. God throws them behind his back. Number four, Jeremiah 31.34, God remembers our sins no more we'll talk about that a bit more specifically this afternoon but god remembers our sins no more number 5 micah 7:19 this is for this afternoon a little prelude god treads our sins underfoot and then finally number 6 also in micah 7:19 god casts our sins into the depths of the sea So we can see that our sins are gone. Growing up in East Central Indiana and the little choruses we sang, one of the songs we sang, and I won't sing it for you, Gone, 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 Gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Buried neath the deepest sea. Yes, that's good enough for me. I am saved eternally, praise God. My sins are G-O-N-E, gone. That had an impact on me. I still remember it yet today. My sins have been forgiven by God's grace. Well, as we hasten and near our conclusion, which is our conclusion, we have one final statement here that is a statement of blessing. Now, it's in the Old Testament context, but we're going to see this as the bigger picture, the big picture, as uh, one of my teachers used to say. And that is found in these words in verse 18. I want to read the verse again and then come and center up on our final concluding phrase who is a god like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage we conclude with the remnant of his heritage god chose israel and as you read what god says about his choice in the book of exodus It wasn't because of who they were or their greatness or their number. He set his love upon them. It wasn't because of who they were, it was because of God's sovereign choice. And I think about that for myself. Again, as we reflect on God's grace to us, we are undeserving. That's the nature of grace. But God delights in mercy. God delights in being gracious. God is a compassionate God. He will not retain his anger forever, as we've already read, but a God who forgives. So the chosen remnant of his heritage. Do you remember I mentioned about Elijah and what was happening with the prophets? But I also remember Elijah when he was wishing that he were he was dead. He was out by himself, and just God, just kill me. I'm no use. You know, nobody cares. Nobody worships. He said, "Yet, I still have six thousand who have not bowed to Baal, nor kissed them." There's always the remnant of God's grace. Even Paul says in Romans eleven five. You probably know these words that there is what an elect remnant according to grace. You know, as I view our world. And the state of chaos that exists, and it seems like it's more on fire than it's ever been, God still has His people in every place. I'll never forget a statement made by a brother who's now with the Lord. Thackadel, and it's again, that's as close as we can get to the pronunciation Thompson, that's easy enough. He was Indian. And we were sort of, uh, a number of churches were like his advisory board to a national pastor. And, uh, it was my first introduction to Indian food, which I'm forever thankful. I love Indian food. I love lots of different foods, but I love Indian food. But I remember him saying that at the time, of course, uh, William Carey was instrumental in the ministry into India back in the day, leaving from England to go there to take the gospel. But I'll never forget something that Thackadel said. He said, there came a time when they threw out the American missionaries And you know India being uh, as they are in Hindu and their hatred of Christianity, some of the horrible things that continue to go on. They threw out the missionaries. He said that there was one thing they could not do. They could not throw out the Holy Spirit. They could not throw out the Spirit of God. And God continues to work, doesn't he, in some of the most difficult places as far as religious persecution of those who are faithful. So there is always that elect remnant according to grace. One of the greatest Impacts upon my life of traveling as my family was able to do was going to Haiti, the poorest country in our hemisphere. And the last night before we left, Pastor uh, Exume, Pastor Jean Exume, with an accordion and a smile that couldn't get any bigger as he sang about heaven, he said, I am a happy Christian. I am a happy Christian. When we were going to the airport in Port-au-Prince, I rode in a van that had no sliding doors. They were gone. And uh, so I'm sitting there with my feet on the post and colding on the luggage, thinking we get there. And then when we get there, there are two flat tires. Now, my reaction to two flat tires being the person I am, oh, no, there's two flat tires. And Pastor Joel, Pastor Joel, oh, I have two flat tires. That was his reaction, you know, just so calm and, you know, but just to see the joy of people, humanly speaking, who have nothing, but they are so joyous and thinking of people that have everything by the world standards aren't as miserable as they can be. What's the difference? What has caused us to differ is Christ. It is Christ alone. He is the one who has caused us to differ. So what are you saying, Pastor Chris? Well, if you go to Galatians chapter 6, and let's do that for our conclusion as we talk about this elect remnant according to grace, folks, we are a part of that heritage. We are part of that elect remnant according to grace. And in Galatians chapter 6, I want you to see how uh, encompassing and full ord this is. You probably realize that uh, knowing your pastor and myself that there's been a journey for all of us, but especially from you know the all of our backgrounds that we've come from, and uh, we were not blessed to be like from our brothers and sisters from a Dutch reform background growing up we've had a journey to get where we are, uh, but it 's been a wonderful journey, a journey of grace. but here is one thing that i 'd like to share from Galatians chapter six that to me was just so impacting. And a revolutionary when I understood uh, this covenant keeping and covenant making God. Galatians 6.16 And as many as walk according to this rule peace be upon them and mercy, which we have talked about today and upon the Israel of God. Remember Jacob? Jacob, basically his name meant cheater. Now, I know people still choose that for a name, and that's fine, because they don't know the Hebrew origin, but a cheater, heel snatcher, Jacob. He had his name changed to what? Israel, prince with God. And God, in his grace, has made us a part of his family, joint heirs with Jesus, those of us who have been redeemed, a people uh, for a price that God has redeemed unto himself, the Israel of God. And uh, that is the unity of the scriptures. That is the unity of the people. And that's a glorious message for us that people from every what tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation, as Revelation shows us, we will be there shouting the praises to God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. But this group of people, the redeemed from all the ages, worshiping and praising God. Now we're doing that this morning We are worshiping and praising God. We are giving what we should ascribe to him. But oh, for the day that is coming when we will do so perfectly and be with God forever. So yes, we are that remnant of his heritage, chosen by grace, kept by grace. And to God be the glory. To God alone be the glory. Great things he has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for This day, and again the time that we've had to worship together in spirit and in truth, we ask now that you would take your word, impact our lives with it, help us to be hearers and doers, help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name, amen.